Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. And today I'm talking to Dr. Jerry Wayne, a gynecological oncologist at the Westmead Hospital in Sydney. And he's also the director of the New South Wales Cervical Screening Program. As you might have guessed, we'll be discussing cervical cancers and in the events of the new vaccine, which is now available to women between the ages of 12 and 26. Dr. Wayne, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Pleasure. Can we talk briefly about your position as Director of the New South Wales Cervical Screening Program? How long have you been in this particular position and how long has it been in existence? Um, I've been the Director of the Cervical Screening Program since 1996 and in, in this 10 years or so we've seen a reduction in the, both the incidence and the mortality of cervical cancer by about 50%. That means we're getting half as many cancers and half as many women dying of the cancers over this period. What originally led you to the interest of gynaecology? Well, cervical cancer is the commonest cancer amongst women on a world basis. It's less common in Australia, obviously, because of the cervical screening program. But uh, it's a very, very important uh, disease and has a very important impact upon women's lives across the world. So I think the opportunity to uh, make some efforts, make a difference in this area has been very, very attractive from the beginning. And do you think that women are more aware of the chances of getting cancer than they used to be? I think there's a great deal of awareness about cancers these days and uh, the, the, the opportunities to reduce the risks of getting cancer on a whole range of aspects are there. Reducing smoking, diet, exercise, all of those things are very, very important at reducing the risk of cancer. But cervical cancer is a disease that we can do something very specific about. And is there, in fact, any evidence that there are more cases of cancer than there used to be, say, 10 years ago? Uh, it depends on the disease setting. There's uh, more breast cancers being detected than previously. Uh, uterine cancer is more common than it used to be, and that's partly due to uh, the increase in weight and obesity. But cervical cancer is getting less, so it, it depends. It, different cancers are under different influences and different, different effects are having um, impacts on the overall incidence of each of these cancers. Do you think this is due to largely a change in our lifestyle of, say, 10 years ago when we were less heavy and, and perhaps more active than we are now? Well, that certainly would be explaining the incidence of uh, endometrial cancer and also the, the, the increased a- ageing of the population. Um, endometrial cancer, for example, uterine cancer is a cancer common in older women and obesity is certainly a risk factor there. So as the population is getting older and heavier, then uh, that that disease is getting more frequent. The survival rate has increased in that time, in the 10 years. Obviously, a lot of this is due to specialists like yourself and medical science. But how much of this do you really think is due to the education of women in persuading them to have pap smears on a regular basis? Well, the major impact on cervical cancer incidence and mortality is entirely due to the cervical screening program to, to women having regular pap smears. Having regular pap smears is not complete protection against cervical cancer, but uh, it certainly means that if a woman develops cervical cancer, she is more likely to get have it at an earlier stage and much more likely to be cured of that cancer. So overall, the impact of of pap smears and cervical screening on cervical cancer has been quite remarkable. That's really where the impact has been. And uh, if women who develop cervical cancer, even if they've had pap smears at some stage in the past, are much more likely to be cured of the disease.
Do you think that some women are reluctant to go for a pap smear in much the same way as men are reluctant to go for prostate cancer uh, checkups? Well, it's an interesting question. I think they're two different things, really. I think the whole debate about prostate cancer screening is still very, very controversial, and I think uh, a lot of men uh, are probably not having prostate cancer screening for because the evidence is not clear that it would benefit them, but the evidence in cervical screening is, uh, is very clear, and I think uh, we've got down to an area where there are some key obstacles that some women, whatever the benefits of cervical screening, they, they may intellectually understand these benefits, but it's still a very, very difficult thing for them to do, and uh, I think that's the, that's the final problem at the end, that uh, despite this uh, opportunity for uh, a health intervention, women still, there is a small group of women who still will resist the, the invitations to, uh, to have a regular pap smear. Is this in much the same way as women know that they should have their breast checked or even check them themselves, but tend to bury their head in, in the sand and say, oh, look, I'm fit and healthy, it's not going to happen to me? Yeah, there's a number of factors. I think there's cultural factors, there's environmental factors, all sorts of factors that uh, some women just don't want to go through that process of having a pap smear. Some women have a history of previous sexual abuse. There's, uh, there's problems with all of, all of those sorts of things. Women who, whatever for whatever reason, just find the idea of having a pap smear uh, too invasive on their lives. So uh, it's a pity, really. Is there anything that can be done to persuade them, not so much to go, but it probably really isn't as invasive as they think it is? Is there any sort well, of the, guidelines? The most useful way to encourage women to have pap smears is to have a very understanding or, or sympathetic health provider, a GP, for example, who can uh, talk to women about their individual anxieties and talk to them about their particular concerns, uh, explain the procedure to them on a one-to-one -one basis and take them through on a very careful stepwise process and, uh, and we find most of our educational efforts have been towards uh, encouraging GPs to work with women on this process and, and GPs and health providers are the, are the most successful recruiters of cervical screening that we have. I guess that going to a GP he'd know the family history or, or the person's history background and could thus tailor his, his her. Yes and that, that is, it's a very personal thing, it's, that's why when it comes to the actual conduct of pap smears, it's really very much a, a relationship between the, the, mm. the woman herself and her health provider that uh, is most successful at overcoming these obstacles. In general, how long does the actual examination take? Oh, only a few minutes. The take mm. pap smear can be quite, if, you, if you're skilled, as most GPs are, it's a fairly quick procedure and uh, it really just takes a few minutes. How long does it take before the results come back? Uh, most labs will get the result back to the office in about two or three days. So. so it's not a long protracted wait until such time as the evidence you know, comes back? No, no, not at all. Most, most labs can get a result very quickly. I'm talking today to Dr Jerry Wayne, who is a gynaecological oncologist at the Westmead Hospital. Dr Wayne, can you tell me exactly where the cervix sits in the body? Uh, the cervix is really um, at, at the lower portion of the uterus. Uh, it used to be called the neck of the womb. Um, the cervix is the part of the, the uterus that uh, supports the uterus and uh, supports a pregnancy during pregnancy. So it's the cervix. The cervix is just at the top of the, up, the upper portion of the vagina at the, at the lower portion of the uterus. So it's actually supported by the vagina? Does it sort of sit at the top of that? It's at the top of the vagina, yes. Yeah, okay. And you tell me that it's the 
the cervix exactly part of, of the uterus itself. When you do a pap smear, is this easy to to see and to get at while, while the examination's going on? Yes, it's, quite, it's usually very simple for a skilled technician, a skilled doctor who's doing the pap smear. Gently insert a speculum into the vagina and as you open the, spe- the leaves of the speculum, the speculum's a metal instrument that it, sometimes it's a plastic instrument that you insert into the vagina. It opens up and then usually the cervix is sitting at the top of the vagina and uh, it's easily visualised. The doctor will have a good look at the cervix, make sure it looks normal and healthy. And then the pap smear is taken by just gently wiping some cells from the surface of the cervix on a spatula or like, a, like an ice cream stick uh, and then putting those cells onto a glass slide. So it's a very, very simple procedure. And painless? Uh, it should be painless. Mm. Although a lot of women do talk about some discomfort. Sometimes pressure on the cervix can cause some odd sensations and not so much a sensation of pain, uh, but, a, but a sort of discomfort sensation, uh, like a period pain or something like that. Once a woman's had a sexual relationship, however brief, why does this leave her open to the risk of cervical cancer? Well, that brings on to um, where cervical cancer comes from. Cervical cancer is... Uh, really related to the human papillomavirus infection of the cervix. And uh, HPV, or human papillomavirus, is, um, is a very common in, uh, infection. It's uh, common in most sexually active people. And it's very, very highly contagious. So that uh, usually just through any sexual activity, there's a very high risk. If you have sexual activity with someone who is infected with HPV, uh, there's a very high chance of that being transmitted across to the to the, each, from one person to another. Now, usually that has no consequence, but when that uh, infection sits on the cervix and fails to resolve, eventually that leads to the changes that might turn into cervical cancer down the line. So the basis of it all really is the sexual activity that uh, transmits the, the viral infection at the beginning. And presumably the carrier wouldn't know they've got it? Uh, not usually. Mm. Uh, there are some strains of HPV that uh, are associated with obvious genital warts, but they're the they're un- they're the less common types. Uh, they're the ones that would tell a person that they have HPV infection, but they're also the ones that are probably least important in terms of developing cervical cancer. So the ones that are most important, uh, very, uh, most people would be very unlikely to know that they have any problems. Mm. For those people who, or for those women who have never been sexually active, are they still at some risk of developing cancer? Not if they've truly been never, never sexually active, no genital contact. Not so, not, uh, and, and really it's important to, to, to rule out completely any genital contact because the virus can be transmitted just through, through, through finger contact or genital contact or any sort of uh, contact. But if someone has truly never been sexually active, then, uh, then they're not at any risk of developing cervical cancer. And those, those women really don't need to be concerned about having pap smears. That was going to be my next question. Do they need to go and have a pap smear? Not if they've never been sexually active. Mm. There's really no, no cause for concern there. Can we take the hypothetical case of a woman who's had a pap smear and the results have come back showing that there may be a chance of early cancer cells? What happens next to the patient? Right, well, that, that woman is uh, showing evidence of HPV infection. If the, what the pap smear does is actually pick up the changes on the cells which indicate HPV infection. Now, some of those changes are of no consequence. Some of them uh, may eventually turn into a truly significant problem for the woman. So 
there are a number of uh, different types of changes and depending upon the severity of the changes, the woman will be recommended a couple of different things. If the changes are very mild or low-grade changes, we would usually recommend that that pap smear be repeated 12 months later. That gives the, the body an opportunity to clear the infection and to, uh, to get back to normal, which is the overwhelmingly commonest development. If the pap smear in 12 months' time is still abnormal or if the changes on the pap smear are, are of a much higher grade nature or, or a much more serious nature, then we recommend that that woman be sent off to a specialist, a gynaecologist, for what's called a colposcopic assessment of the cervix. A colposcopy is like a magnifying glass or a microscope that looks at the cervix and gets a very close look at the cervix. It takes a few minutes longer than uh, the original pap smear, but it gives the specialist, the gynaecologist, an opportunity to see where the abnormal cells are on the cervix and to see how severe those changes are and then usually to take a biopsy to see how significant the changes are. And that, that process is really the colposcopic assessment is the, is the way you sort out whether an abnormal pap smear is truly of any significance at all. If the next steps show that there's definitely cancer forming, where do these cells actually start to grow? Just is on the outside of the cervix is where all of these problems develop. That's why the colposcopy is able, usually able to see the abnormality. Um, there's a number of different options, a number of different uh, choices that are needed to be made by the treating specialist at that point and, and a decision needs to be made whether there is in fact cancer present. Occasionally there is true cancer present and uh, the patient needs fairly aggressive or radical treatment or most frequently there's some changes which we would generally call the precancerous changes which are treated fairly simply uh, with a fairly just a, just a local treatment that preserves the woman's uterus and preserves her fertility. So uh, there are a number of treatment options available depending upon the actual diagnosis that's made. So I, I guess if a woman has a pap smear and then it's suggested she go back, however much later, that it's not necessarily a time to throw up her hands in horror and say, yeah, this is the end type thing. Oh, absolutely not. The overwhelming majority of abnormal pap smears are uh, very minor changes, usually indicating the HPV infection, and we know that most of those changes just resolve spontaneously. So there are different degrees of, of, of diagnosis on the pap smear and different levels of abnormality will get different recommendations. But the overwhelming majority of um, abnormal pap smears don't need urgent treatment. But they usually just indicate uh, recent HPV infection and we know that most of those infections resolve spontaneously. So the diagnosis of an abnormal pap smear shouldn't cause too much anxiety in a woman because usually it doesn't have any immediate consequences. It's really a matter of observing that woman over a number of years and seeing what develops. I suppose like a, a lot of women, I'm fairly ignorant in exactly how the, the cervix is situated regarding the rest of the uterus. But is it possible to remove part of the cervix if, if that's where the cancer is? Yes, yeah, certainly. There's a number of operations. The, the simplest operation is, is just to... Uh, burn or laser or, or somehow or other destroy the abnormal area and the cervix then just uh, heals up and forms it back to almost essentially normal. Sometimes we do a procedure called a cone biopsy that cuts out a small area of the cervix shaped like an ice cream cone. It's about one or two centimetres in diameter 
And if you do that procedure, the cervix usually heals up very well and, uh, and, and everything remains back to normal. Occasionally we need to remove the entire cervix, which is a, a more complicated operation, and occasionally we need to remove the entire uterus. So there are a number of steps along the way, and uh, if a woman's concerned about this, she should discuss with her doctor exactly what level of uh, intervention she's receiving, what sort of uh, treatment she's receiving, because not all treatments are the same, and they all have a number of different impacts upon the woman's life. And I realise what I'm going to say now is very much a general statement, but if it's found early enough, what are the chances of a full re recovery from cancer for a patient? Well, if uh, the, the commonest thing we find is, in fact, precancerous changes, and uh, those changes are almost completely curable. If we find that a woman has a true cancer on the cervix, if it's early and confined to the cervix, then her chances of cure are excellent uh, in the order of uh, almost 100% often, if, depending on the size of the cancer. The problems we have the, from this disease is when the cancer is larger than that, when it's a, a bulkier tumour or whether, it's, whether the tumour has extended into the tissues around the cervix or beyond the cervix, those women are more difficult to treat. But uh, again, even those women still have a good success rate as well with, uh, with, with modern treatment. So uh, it's certainly not a doom and gloom scenario on all occasions. And uh, with complex treatment, uh, many of these women can, can be successfully cured. I guess that's what the majority of us need to know or at least like to hear. As you said, it's not all doom and gloom. No, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think that's the advantage of uh, regular pap smears, that uh, a woman who undergoes regular pap smears is not likely to get into that doom and gloom situation. I'm a gynaecological oncologist, and the women that I see who are in deep trouble with this disease are those women who've never had pap smears. Women who've never had pap smears are much more likely to present with advanced disease and, uh, and are much more problematic in terms of treating them. Dr Jerry Wayne, Director of New South Wales Cervical Screening Program, is my guest today. Dr Wayne, I know that there are some countries where there is a longer period between pap smears, but is once every two years really enough? Uh, certainly, and I think that uh, we have a very frequent pap smear program every two years in the consequences of that is that we pick up a lot more abnormalities than uh, other countries do and that that may sound counterintuitive as a good thing to do but uh, if you pick up abnormalities that are not significant and then are likely to go away by themselves in the space of 12 months or so then we're not really doing those women a service some countries have a the who for example recommends that we have a three-year program and the evidence suggests that a three-year program would be more than adequate in, in terms of the impact upon disease and is probably less likely to pick up these frequent, insignificant HPV infections. So there's a lot of debate about what the optimal screening interval is. I, I certainly think the, if you, the more frequently you screen women, the more likely you are to find abnormalities. And uh, most of those abnormalities are not going to be important. So... Uh, there's a trade-off between how much anxiety you want to provoke and how much uh, impact you want to have on cervical cancer. And the evidence would suggest that a three-year interval is perfectly adequate. Supposing a woman has a pap smear, say, in 2004, and it comes back clear, but then about six months later, the changes start in her cervix. What's the risk? Is there any problem of waiting for the next test or would the woman be aware of any symptoms and what sort of symptoms? 
Well, occasionally a woman will be aware of symptoms of abnormal bleeding or discharge from the cervix and uh, those symptoms, any woman with any symptom, regardless of what her pap smear says, needs to have those symptoms assessed. I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about a woman who has no symptoms mm. um, and we know that these development of cervi this development of cervical cancer is usually a very slowly progressive thing so that uh, the, the impact from... Uh, the viral infection, the HPV, through to the low-grade changes, through to the, uh, the early changes on the cervix and the precancerous changes on the cervix and then eventually onto cervical cancer is usually a very, very slow process. And the order, the order of that process is, is net, seldom less than five or six years, but more like about 10 years. So the idea of just sampling the cervix every now and again is what picks up those changes. The woman that you described who, you know, has some viral infection six months after a normal smear, she's, she's not actually going to get into any significant trouble for a few years. So uh, a two to three year screening interval would be perfectly adequate for that woman to pick up the abnormalities. And if the abnormalities persist, to, uh, we would know then that she needs to have treatment. So I, I don't think she needs to be too anxious about uh, missing the abnormality. We do know that there are problems. Some not, pap smear is not perfect, of course, and uh, we can't can't hide the fact that occasionally the pap smear system, just because it's a, a technical process, uh, occasionally misses changes, and uh, that is a problem, and that's why we recommend that women have regular smears. So in actual fact, it's not a cancer that's going to gallop away if it's not picked up, say, 18 months from the time the... Not at all, not no. at all, no. It's, it's, it's what we know about cervical cancer is that it takes a very long time to ch turn, to move from that viral infection through to the, uh, the cancer itself. What sort of survival rate do we have from cervical cancer? I mean, is it, you know, what sort of percentage? Well, it depends upon the stage of the cancer. We, stage is a technical term that describes really the extent of the cancer at the time of diagnosis. And it, we, we usually break that down into four stages. Stage one is where the cancer is confined to the cervix. And the survival rate for that should be, depending on the type of stage one, there's some sub-stages in that, depending on the type of cancer and the, and the extent of the cancer, the survival rate for that should be close to 100%. When you move up to stage 3 and 4 cancer, which is a very advanced cancer, the survival rates drop down quite significantly so that a patient with a stage 4 cancer might only have a 20 to a 30% survival rate over five years. It sounds like there's an awful lot of optimism, I guess, for the woman if she is worried by news that she might have an infection or, and or cancer. I think so. I think you've got to put those early infections, the HPV infections and the low-grade changes and, the, and, and even the high-grade changes on the cervix are very much at the, the early end of the spectrum and, that, and the woman has ample time to get that sorted out over a number of years. It's only when she may be symptomatic with abnormal bleeding, discharge, when she may have a truly invasive cancer, those are the that need to be assessed urgently and sorted out very quickly. Now we've been talking about pap smears. But recently there's a vaccine being produced or is now produced so that young women can have this injection to prevent a particular cancer. Can you tell me what that's all about? Yeah, well, that's, this is a, a great development and a great addition to cervical cancer screening. We've always been picking up the changes down the line with pap smears, but this is an opportunity to uh, introduce a completely new approach to preventing cervical cancer. And the way the vaccine works is to develop and produce antibodies in the patient, in the woman, 
And these antibodies prevent the development of, of the HPV, the, the viral infection, in the first place. So we come right up to the very beginning. So before the patient is even exposed to the virus, uh, you can develop antibodies, prevent the infection, and prevent the development of cervical cancer. So really it's a supplementary way of... Um, of preventing cervical cancer in a completely different approach from what we've used previously. Not a different approach in terms of reducing the need for pap smears, but just to supplement and additionally reduce the chances of developing cervical cancer. So in actual fact, even if the lass has had the vaccine, she would still need to have her pap smears on a regular basis? At this stage, we're recommending that she continue to have pap smears as before. I think in the relatively near future, we'll probably come up with different recommendations. I think if we reduce the risk of viral infection, then we will reduce the risk of cervical cancer. And it'll probably be very safe to reduce the uh, frequency with which we do pap smears in the future. But at this stage, that's a bit theoretical at the moment. And I think until we've got good coverage with the vaccine, we wouldn't be ready to make any recommendations about different screening intervals yet. But I think in the future we will. Now, I said at the beginning of the introduction that it will be available for girls between 12 and 26. Is this just a one-off injection or is it a series? It's a series of injections. It's given over six months, three injections. The recommended, recommended interval is to give it on day one, two months later and then six months later. And it's, the evidence suggests that those three injections are what uh, are required to give the optimal benefit from the vaccine. If you have less than complete vaccination program, then the benefits of the vaccination won't be as substantial. So we, we, at this stage we're strongly recommending that all women have the three-dose uh, schedule. Is this available nationally or only in New South Wales? No, it will be available nationally. It's been made, made available nationally through the federal government uh, national immunisation program and that will be taking off uh, in the next few months, probably around April this year. The program will involve giving injections to young girls at school, uh, young girls from uh, the ages of 12 up to the end of their school years and then uh, women over that age group from about 18 up to 26 will be able to receive the vaccine from their general practitioners and it'll be free through the National Immunisation Program um, over the next few years. Is it available now? Uh, it's available now under private prescription. Um, mm. A woman can go to her GP and get a prescription for the vaccine. That's associated with a cost at the moment of the injection. The vaccine costs about $120 per dose. If, if she's keen to have the vaccine immediately, then uh, she, can, she can certainly do that through her general practitioner. Do you happen to know if the medical insurance companies are refunding some or all of that money now? Uh, yes, they are, actually. Most health insurance funds, I understand, are giving a rebate of about $50 per dose back. So there is some rebate back, so it, which takes some of the cost away from the patient. Mm, and I guess that um, the way things are looking, that is still is a small price to pay for what could ultimately eradicate cervical cancer. Well, it certainly it substantially reduces mm. the woman's risk of mm. uh, infection with the commonest strange of strains associated with cervical cancer, and it also reduces her chances of getting uh, genital warts, uh, which in itself is a is a worthwhile investment for a woman. Mm. If people want to know more about cervical cancer or about the new vaccine, where can they get the information? The Commonwealth Government has a uh, website. It is at cancerscreening.org gov.au that's one word cancerscreening.gov.au and that will give them the information that they need at least to get them off the ground and start to understand it all 
Yes, it also gives them information at the same time about breast screening and bowel screening as well. So uh, it, it's a very good website for a number of aspects of cancer screening in general. Dr Wayne, thank you for talking to me today. Dr Wayne is the Director of the New South Wales Cervical Screening Program and a gynaecological oncologist at the Westmead Hospital. Thank you for listening to Wellbeing. I'll be back again with another program next week. So until then, it's goodbye from Iris Nichols and the team, and we wish you well.